grab your bibbles and uh, open at James chapter 4. <clears throat> just um, to remind you that uh, just, just for this series, um, having, having been talked into going over to the NIV, I'm a, I've reverted back to the RSV for this series because when I prepared it, it was the RSV. So we're back to the really sanctified version. Um, most of you, of course, are on your NIVs, the, the notoriously incorrect version, but never mind, we go back to the Greek in this fellowship, so it doesn't matter too much. Right, okay, um, so James and uh, chapter 4. Let's just uh, keep, keep in the forefront of our minds that really, in effect, what, what James is all about. He's, he's, he's basically saying this, he's writing to Christians not at a particular church, but just Jewish Christians who are dispersed all over the place. And <clears throat> his thesis is purely this. If you're saved, then act saved. That's the burden of the letter. He's saying, you've been born again, that's a fact. So therefore, live like the child of God you are, rather than carrying on as if you were still a child of Satan. Uh, he's saying, you've got a new nature, you've been born again. So live in that nature rather than the old nature, which of course can be crucified. And uh, that's the burden of the letter. And we've seen that one of the, the tools that he's using in, in the literary sense is that he's saying, look, there are two kinds of everything when it comes to the Christian life. Everything, there are two kinds. There's the true and there's the false. There's the genuine, and there's the counterfeit. There's the spiritual, and there's the carnal, or the fleshly. Um, or perhaps you could say there's the religious, and there's the Christian. And this is kind of what he's saying. Um, he's, he's covered the fact that there are two types of testing. He says there's the testing that results from being truly led by the Lord, all the difficulties and the temptations and the you know refining work that God does in us but also there's another kind of testing there's the one that results from our own stubbornness uh, our determination to go our own way and step out of God's will and he says that's that's no good um, we saw that there are two kinds of faith James is saying there's the faith that talks um, and he says there's the faith that um, talks and then cares for people. So you can have Christians who are all full of faith and belief and they're always confessing faith all over the place, nothing wrong with that in itself. But he says if it stops there, it's no good, it's false. Unless it goes on to the kind of service of helping the needy that are around us, he says then, then that faith it's just mere words. Um, and then we saw that there are two kinds of wisdom. Wisdom being the application of knowledge, so in a sense, in general, two, two ways to live. There's the, the wisdom that comes from above, the genuine, and he says that that's marked by things like, you know, it's loving, it's gentle, it's patient, it's open to reason. We, we saw all that, but he said there's another kind of wisdom or way to live. And uh, that comes from below, and, and it shows itself in jealousy and selfish ambition and, and, and stuff like that. And so he's, he's writing to all these people and he's saying, look, you're born again, live in the new nature, not the old. 
all right you know sort of you're a child of god live like it you're not a child of satan anymore so don't live that old life that comes from below as it were and we've been seeing in the last few talks that that, that central to to all that he writes and uh you know sort of like um one of the the things that he really highlights is the potential for the evil of our tongues and and he he talks so much about the speech life and uh with with the kind of the verses that we're going on to to see tonight uh, we need to just you know remind ourselves back in chapter 3 of verses 10 to 11 uh, let's just read them. He says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brethren, this ought not to be so. Verse 11, rather. And, uh, and that sets the context of the verses that we're going to see tonight. And of course, with him saying they're about blessing and cursing, of course, the whole point there is that blessing, if you bless someone, it means you want good for them. That's what blessing is all about, good things happening. Whereas cursing is all about bad things happening. So to curse someone is to have that attitude in your heart that you're hoping that something really bad happens to them, obviously, because uh, attitude towards them isn't right. And uh, so, so let's now read, we're just going to do two verses tonight, verses uh, 11 and 12 in chapter 4. So let's read them now. He says, do not speak evil against one another. He that speaks evil against a brother, or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law, and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save you, Sorry, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you that you judge your neighbour? So what he's saying here, still on the tongue, and uh, you know we're going to see how this links into what we saw last time about he's saying about you have you know wars and you're fighting against each other and you're coveting and you know and doing all this kind of thing, and uh, and so in that context now he's saying look don't. Don't speak evil against each other. And this, this uh, Greek word that here is translated speak evil against, uh, in English it's three words, in Greek it's just one. It's katalaliu, and it carries the meaning of backbiting. That is the meaning of the Greek word. And it means to use words in regards to someone with the specific intention of causing them personal harm or damage. And of course, you would only be doing that of someone because there's, uh, you know, kind of like, because you don't love them, because there's some kind of resentment or bitterness against them. And uh, so basically, when he says, don't speak evil against each other, what he's really saying is, you should never have the knives out for someone. That, that, that's the point, backbiting, having the knives out for someone. Now, there are four ways of, uh, of doing this, uh, speaking evil against each other. Uh, you know, someone that you've got it in for and you, you know, you want to get the knives out. There are four ways of doing it. Now then, firstly, you can backbite by saying things about someone that are true. 
It's amazing how it works. For instance, you could pass on the, you know, there's this person that you've got it in for, alright? So you pass on, for instance, the fact that, well, a couple of years ago he had an affair. And, and let's say of this person, that's true. Right? So you pass it on. Oh, he had an affair. He was unfaithful to his wife. But what you don't pass on is that he repented. See? Leave that bit out. And what you're doing there is that you're actually misrepresenting the person by dragging up a sin that they've repented of. But bringing it up in such a way as if they're doing it now. So that's, that's the first way. Remember, this is evil speaking in regards to someone that you've got the knives out for. So there's just, you know, sort of like there's one way you can do it. You can lock on to a sin that they've committed and you can like pass that round but leaving out the fact that they repented of it and they're back in fellowship. It's very subtle. The second way of backbiting um, is passing on things about someone that you don't know whether they're true or not. Obviously all these are going to be negative things, they're not going to be anything nice are they? This is having the knives out for somebody, not building them up. And uh, so passing on things that you don't know whether they're true or not. So there's rumours. It might be things that you've heard, little tidbit, you don't know whether it's true about them or not, but because it's negative and because it's about them, that'll do, pass it on. Or you might just make something up yourself. I mean, it often occurs to me where all these rumours come from, you know, rumours that fly around and stuff like that, someone has to start them, don't they? So presumably at some point in our lives, we've all actually been the starter of a rumour. So whether it's you starting it, me starting it, or it's just merely passing it on, the point is, if it's passing on something negative, and we don't know whether it's true or not, then we're being guilty of rumour, rumour and gossip, really, really bad. The third way of doing it um, is you can say things about someone that you know aren't true. Lies and slander. And, uh, you know, sort of some people might say, oh, 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 but Christians don't tell lies, do they? Well, why does Paul have to say, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old nature? I mean, you know, Christians can lie. If we give in to our old natures, we can virtually do anything that we could have done when we weren't saved. It's the whole point. James is saying you shouldn't be doing this sort of thing. So, so number three, lies and slander, just lying about someone that you've got it in for. And, uh, and then there's a fourth way, and uh, this, this, this is really effective because it's so subtle. And it's attributing evil motives to good actions. So that, for instance, you can see somebody, all right, this person that you've got it in for, you know, you want to do them down, you want to see them harmed. You'd be happy, you know, you want to see people turning against them, because that's how you feel about them. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's like, for instance, you could, um, you know, maybe this person, maybe he's really, really helpful towards the older people, maybe in the fellowship or something. Really looks after the old people, does all their shopping and stuff like that. It's a lovely thing to do, isn't it? That's of the Lord, isn't it? But of course, it's so easy to add in, yeah, I think he's after their money. Is he? Isn't that easy to do? So you can backbite, you can speak evil against somebody that you've got it in for, 
even by taking something that they've done or are doing that is in itself laudable, but then tagging on an evil motive. So it's not, isn't that wonderful the way he helps the old people in the fellowship? It's, he's after their money, isn't he? Because, you know, they'll be turning their toes up soon and he just wants to get well in there for when the wheel's red, doesn't he? Is he? That's another way of doing it. So, the various ways of doing it with people, you can rake up past sins that they've confessed and put right. That's one way of doing it. You can spread malicious rumours. You can pass on lies and slander. Or you can go in for character assassination by attributing evil motives to good actions. And, uh, you know, sort of like in the history of this church, we've, we've seen things like this working, haven't we? And it's all very, very subtle. And he's saying, you know, you must not be doing it. You know, you must never be in a position where you are wanting to actually hurt a brother or, or sister, to drag them down, and so you're actively trying to defame them and, and turn other people against them as well. That's a dreadful thing to do. And it's speaking evil against a brother or a sister, and James says, make sure that you don't do it. And it's quite interesting because he says, he that speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Now, can you see, when he writes that, this idea of speaking evil against is synonymous with judging. So, in effect, the two words he's using here is he's saying, don't speak evil against each other, which equals don't judge. Now, here, all right, if you go to, to Matthew, here we're seeing where James is echoing the direct teaching of Jesus. Uh, if you go to Matthew chapter 7 and uh, verse 1, <clears throat> and Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. And that's what James is saying. You mustn't judge other people or your brothers and sisters. So, in the light of that, we need to um, open this up a bit. And we've got to ask the question, in the light of many other things that we've taught here in this fellowship, there's a question, should Christians ever judge then? Because here we're seeing James saying, no, you mustn't. And we've seen Jesus saying, no, you mustn't. So, there's the question, should Christians ever judge other people? But that question is a bit like asking, how long is a piece of string? Because, of course, it depends what you mean by judging. Because for many, many Christians, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged, and these verses in James, and a few others in Romans that we'll see a bit later on, uh, for many Christians, those verses are the end of the story. Do you see what I mean? They've got their verses, you must not judge, and that's what they turn to, blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, so, so we've got to ask, is this the whole story? And, and of course, we're going on to see that it isn't quite. Um, if you go to um, 1 Corinthians 11, we'll, we'll certainly see, see one bit of judging that, that we're supposed to do. 
1 Corinthians 11 and verse 31, and this, this is in, in the context of the love feast, um, when the Corinthians were coming you know, together and they weren't right with each other and they were getting drunk and you know, treating the whole thing with amazing disrespect and, and of course some of them real and, and some of them had died you know and Paul was writing saying look this is God's judgment upon you and in verse um, verse which verse do I want verse 31 he says but if we judged ourselves truly we should not be judged so there Paul definitely introduces the idea of judging ourselves not judging others but me judging myself so Christians who are in the what I call the Matthew 7 chapter 1 brigade, Christians must never ever judge, they'd be happy with that. They'd be happy with that verse because that, that's saying we've got to judge ourselves. And of course the whole idea being that, that, that if I keep a close rein on my own life and stay in fellowship with God, then there's not going to come the time when he's really having to judge me in order to bring me back into line. So, you know, if we judged ourselves, God wouldn't do it, okay. So, yeah, the Matthew 7 verse 1 brigade would say, yeah, that, that, that's fine. So they say, you know, sort of like the Bible says you mustn't judge ever. Uh, you know, Jesus said it in Matthew 7 and, and of course James says it in, in, Matthew, uh, in James 4 and we're going to see Paul saying it in Romans. But here they say, no, Paul talking about judging ourselves, that's different, we ought to do that. And uh, But now if you go, still in 1 Corinthians, but but go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, from verse 9 onwards, Paul is dealing with the thing about that if you've got people in, in the fellowship who are claiming you know, to be following the Lord, but they're into unrepentant sin, all over the place, then he says, look, there, there comes a time for withdrawing your fellowship from them and having nothing to do with them. And in that context, in verse 12, he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Because he was saying, in the Corinthian church, what happened, the Christians were starting to withdraw from unbelievers because they were immoral. Paul was saying, no, I wasn't meaning that at all. You can't withdraw from unbelievers because they're immoral. I mean, crikey, that's daft. But he says, you must withdraw from people who claim to follow the Lord who are immoral and won't put it right. And so he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? I oh, say, you know, it's not, you know, what unbelievers outside the church do, that's no problem. But he's saying, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Ah, so here we see Paul in contrast to what Jesus has said in Matthew 7 and in contrast to what James has said, here we see Paul saying, no, you must judge people inside the church. So here we have a bold statement, um, you know, that, that yeah, there is a place for us to be judging each other. And, um, you know, sort of, and so... For anyone who, who wants to maintain that we should never judge and yet ignore the, you know, sort of like, for instance, this verse here, that's to blatantly ignore a bit of the Bible and can't be right. Um, so, therefore, we're left here with what appears to be a bit of a, a contradiction. The Bible teaches, on the one hand, that you mustn't judge, and then teaches, on the other hand, that you must judge. Now, this is why I said earlier that 
the questions should Christians ever judge is a bit like asking how long is a piece of string. We, we've got to make the question a bit more specific. So we'll answer it in a more specific way. Should Christians ever judge? Now go to Leviticus and find chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19 and we will start to find our answer here. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 15. And he says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbour. Now go to Deuteronomy, where we see the same principle repeated. And chapter 16 in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 18, and it says this, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. Now what we've got there is just judgment as opposed to unjust judgment. Or to put it another way, we have their righteous judgment as opposed to unrighteous judgment. So we can now answer the question, should Christians ever judge others? Well, the answer is, with wrong judgment, no, never. But with right judgment, yes. See, let's, let's just dispose once and for all of the idea that Christians should never judge. Because you do meet lots of Christians and they say that. You should never judge. You know, I mean, if you say anything that might be corrective or anything like that at all, it's all, you're judging me, or whatever. And uh, so, in effect, their argument is that you must never, you mustn't say that other Christians are wrong. Because if you do, you're judging them. And therefore, you mustn't judge. So, Let's ask a question. You mustn't say that other Christians are wrong because that's judging. And here we're seeing, you know, the Bible, they say James says you mustn't judge and Jesus said you mustn't judge. So you must never tell other Christians that they're wrong. Right. Does James pass that test himself? See? The very letter where James says don't judge each other. Does James pass this test of not telling other Christians they're wrong? Well, no, he doesn't. And in fact, the Bible as a whole fails that test. We saw that James has called these believers spiritual adulteresses and enemies of God. See? So, whatever judging or not judging is or isn't, then there's no way that it can be said that it's wrong to ever say to somebody that they're wrong because that's judging them. Because here, James does precisely that. And so does the Bible. I mean, James has written a letter to Christians and he calls them sinners and men of double mind. Well, I mean, that's potentially offensive stuff. 
I mean, could you imagine these Christians getting together and writing back to James, getting a reply together, saying, Dear James, you're judging us, see? And they'd have got another letter, and we'd have a second letter of James, if this had happened, saying, Too right I am. You know, repent. Get your lives right with God. Yeah, too right I'm judging you, he'd say. But I'm judging you in the right way. And notice as well, that with the book of James and also elsewhere in the Bible, it's not just that the Bible writers will judge actions, they will also at times judge and expose Christians' wrong motives. Because you do get an argument that will allow the judgment of actions, but would always preclude any judgment on motives, saying, well, we can't know. Now, it's certainly true, it would be very easy to make judgments on people's motives at the wrong time and in the wrong place and get it wrong. But there is a place for judging motives. I mean, James has been doing it all the way through his letter. He says, you're full of greed, you're <coughs> coveting, you're jealous, blah, blah, blah. That's judging motives. All right. So, clearly we're seeing that this thing about when James is saying don't judge, what he's saying is, you mustn't judge with wrong judgment. And that is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7, chapter 1. You mustn't judge with wrong judgment. It doesn't mean you can never, ever declare that somebody is wrong about something. But the greatest irony, I find, of the Christians who really are in the no-judging-ever brigade, i.e. the ones who are say, oh, no, you're judging. You mustn't judge. You mustn't judge. The, the irony that I find with them is the speed at which they will tell Christians whom they consider to be judging that they're wrong. Now, can you see how ironic that is? You've got Christians who believe it is always wrong to judge. It is always wrong to correct, all right? And they say, it's wrong, boom. So maybe you're talking with them, and then you might mention something, well, I think this is wrong. And then you're judging, they think it's wrong. So they pile in and they tell you you're wrong to be judging. But the moment they do it, they're doing to you what you've just, they're telling you you're wrong. But when you made a statement that something was wrong, they said, no, you mustn't do it, that's judging. And yet they're telling you off when they're doing it. And that's the great irony. And when you really look into it, this idea about, you know, sort of like you must never judge, if you've got a Christian who's into that, and this is their position, you must never judge. So, you know, they, that they hear corrective talk and they say, no, you're judging. Or they hear somebody saying, no, that is unbiblical, that's wrong. Oh, no, you're judging. What, in effect, it boils down to is that they're Christians who have kind of got themselves a little bubble that, that in their minds, make them impervious from any accountability whatsoever. So you're not ever allowed to tell them that you're wrong. Sorry, you're not ever allowed to say to them that they're wrong about something because their response is, you're judging me. But they're allowed to tell you you're wrong for telling them that they're wrong. And you've, you've just got this amazing double standard. They've got one rule for themselves, but a completely different rule for those around them. And so that's the crazy thing about it. When you get people who say, no, you must never judge, you say, no, I think this is biblical. Oh, you're judging us, you're judging us. They're telling you you're wrong. But they're telling you you're wrong 
for saying that something is wrong. They're doing to you what they've just told you you're wrong to have done. And I mean, it's just a kind of a, a crazy hypocrisy, really. And uh, so what James is dealing with here, okay, when he talks about not judging, he's not in fact dealing with uh, right judgment. I mean, James is not saying you should never ever correct or you should never ever hold something up to the, the standard of God's word to test it to see if it's right or wrong. What he's saying is that there must be none of this wrong judgment. And we've been seeing all the kind of stuff that he's talking about. When you've got Christians who've got the knives out for each other and they're talking each other down. That is what James is talking about. So when he says about, you know, sort of like, you, you mustn't judge your brother, he's saying you mustn't have this wrong kind of judgment, this judgment that speaks evil against a brother or sister for the reason that you've got it in for them. He's saying there mustn't be any of that. So let's just have a look at some of the types of wrong judgment. I mean, we've done a, you know, a rundown of the various ways you can do it, but there are categories uh, you know, of this wrong judgment when you can end up making judgments when it's wrong for you to do so. And uh, if you go to, to Romans chapter 14, and uh, these are the verses of Paul that the No Judging Ever Brigade tend to, to pounce on. Um, Romans chapter 14. Now, I'm going to read, um, first of all, I'm going to read verse 4, when Paul says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the master is able to make him stand. And then verse 10, when he says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And then verse 13, then let us no more pass judgment on one another, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So here you've got Paul saying, stop judging each other. So let's actually see the context, all right? Uh, go back to verse 1, and we'll read verse 1 to 3, and then verse 5. When Paul says, As for the man who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not for disputes over opinions. One believes he may eat anything, while the weak man eats only vegetables. Let him, let not him who eats, despise him who abstains, and let not him who abstains pass judgment on him who eats, for God has welcomed him. And then verse 5, one man esteems one day as better than another, while another man esteems all days alike. Let everyone be fully convinced in his own mind. And of course here we saw this when we did the Law and Grace series. And of course what Paul is dealing with here are kind of areas of the Christian life which are what you would call morally neutral. So, for instance, vegetarians. Now, we know, because the Bible makes it clear, it's right to eat meat. But if you've got a Christian who's weak in the faith, and for whatever reason he can't come to terms with that 
and only eats greens or vegetables, then what the Bible is saying is right, don't judge him. Don't put him in the position where in effect you're saying, I'm only prepared to relate to you if you're willing to put this right, i.e. you're treating him as if he's in sin and demanding virtually that he put it right. So we've got an area where the Bible says what is right and wrong about something, but doesn't define it as a sin if you go against it. So the Bible says it's right to eat meat. Vegetarianism is wrong. And yet the Bible gives the Christian complete freedom to be vegetarians if they want to be because they're weak in the faith. Their conscience is weak. And those who eat meat are to be fully accepting of those who won't eat meat. Yeah, by all means, debate it. Yeah, you know, sort of like go into it, you know. But the thing is, don't make a big deal out of it. It's not the same as somebody being in sin. I mean, if you found someone who was stealing, that's a bit of an issue. Or, you know, sort of, if you found someone going against the Bible in other areas, that's a bit of an issue. But here, we have various aspects of life where people are given the freedom to go against what the Bible teaches if their conscience allows them to. And it's things like vegetarianism. And also, uh, you know, the thing about Sabbath-keeping. Now, I mean, if you've got a believer, now in the New Covenant, there's no Sabbath, there's no special days. But the point is, if you've got someone whose conscience forces them to be in this kind of special day, and maybe they're very much into, like, you know, Sunday is the Sabbath, and of course Sunday isn't a Sabbath at all, but the point is they want to make Sunday a Sabbath, and, you know, maybe no newspapers, they won't even wash the car, uh, you know, won't put the telly on. Well, okay, yeah, that's going to seem a bit odd to someone who knows that they're quite free to do that in the Lord. But the point is, you must never get in fights about it. I.e., that person is free to do that if they want to because of their weak conscience. And so, therefore, we've got this area of life where the Bible, you know, sort of like says, in regards to various things, where a Christian might be going against the teaching of the Bible, but nevertheless, they're free to do so. It's not actually a sin if they do. Now, obviously, you couldn't apply this and say, oh, well, I think I'll start sleeping around because, I mean, I've got a weak conscience, because obviously moral areas are specifically forbidden under any circumstances. But we're talking here with things like vegetarianism, we're talking here about things like, you know, Sabbath-keeping. Um, I'd chuck in here the, the, the vast sea of black and white issues where the Bible doesn't chapter and verse actually speak. I mean, this is why, for instance, no one will ever hear me declaring smoking, for example, to be a sin. You've got to show me something chapter and verse in the Bible if you want me to agree that it's sin. You see what I mean? So you have this, this area of kind of black and white halfway house, it's kind of like, yeah, it seems to be going against the Bible, and yet the Lord says, well, look, if that is their conscience, they're the weak brother, absolutely no problem. And he's saying, don't stand in their way, i.e. don't judge them, leave them alone, pray for them by all means, debate it in a friendly way by all means. But he says, welcome them, but not for disputes about opinions. I, what he's saying there, 
I mean, it's like if there was someone, you know, sort of here who was sort of like we knew that every Saturday night they were going out and getting drunk or something. Now, we'd feel that, that we'd want to clear that up before we felt really happy about our fellowship with that person, obviously, or if someone was stealing or something like that. And, and, and so we'd want to, to dispute with them about it, and that would be fair enough. But in these areas, what Paul is saying, look, don't all the time be trying to bring the subject round to that and trying to, you know, get them to start eating meat or whatever, or, or get them to start, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of treating every day the same rather than having Sabbath. He's saying, leave them alone, don't judge them. And he says, if you pressure them, and this is the same with things like smoking as well. If you put pressure on people, you put a stumbling block in their way, i.e. you're going to cause them to stumble. You're going to be a hindrance to them rather than a help. So, so there's an area where we mustn't ever judge. These black and white areas where it's open to individuals' conscience. We must never impose our conscience on other people. It's completely wrong. Now then, the second type of wrong judgment, okay, is a bit more serious. And, uh, you know, sort of like, this is blatant sin. Because after all, I mean, we don't have a vegetarian here in the fellowship, and we don't have any Sabbath keepers here, you know, although we, we have smokers, fine. Now, the point is um, that, that, I mean, it's not, it's not an issue where where you might end up actually falling out with each other and, and not being friends. So even, even say you were a smoker basher or something like that, well, I mean, we all understand, don't we? It's not, I mean, we know that that's not a resentment thing against whoever's smoking or if you're a veggie basher, you know, that's not a resentment thing about vegetarians, that's just misled zeal. But this, this second area is specifically like the wrong judgment that comes directly from wrong attitudes, from pure sin in the heart. And it is the stuff that Jesus was addressing in Matthew 7. And I think we'll actually go back to that now to see specifically the kind of wrong judgment that Jesus was addressing in Matthew chapter 7. We've already seen verse 1, but we'll read it again. He says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Now, here's the key to it. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So here, in verse 1, when Jesus says, look, do not judge, he then goes on to specify the kind of wrong judgment that he's saying you mustn't do. And it's the wrong judgment of the Pharisees. Because the point is, you've got here the evil and the hypocrisy of being the type of person who wants to correct people, okay, you know, get in there and correct, but you can end up correcting people for lesser sins than you've actually got undealt with in your own life. You see what I mean? I mean, can you imagine someone, for instance, 
um, you know, who say there was, um, you know, sort of, say, say someone went out and got drunk, okay? I mean, bad move. And then, then, you know, this person A finds out that person B went out and got drunk, bad move. But person A really goes in there to bring person B to repentance. But if person B is married and is having a secret affair that no one knows about, then can you see the getting drunk becomes a speck in comparison to the log that is undealt with in his own life. You see the point? So what this is, it's nitpicking in other people's lives whilst turning a blind eye to the, the, the big undealt with sins in our own life. It's, it's the, the, the hypocrisy of Pharisee who's blind to his own sin, but the slightest thing that someone else does wrong, he's in there correcting them. Now that is the kind of the wrong judgment that Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. So it's the point, you've got, you know, sort of maybe, you know, sort of someone who, I mean, you can't grade sin, but for the purposes of the point I'm trying to make, I mean, sort of say person B commits a, a, a 5 out of 10 sin, and, and then Christian B pitches into him, but who is themselves guilty of a 9 out of 10 sin. Can you see the idea? And Jesus is saying, no, that is wrong judgment, and you must not do it. And of course the point is, the Bible tells us, and we're going to actually see this later on in James, that if you're going to go in and correct someone, and the Bible doesn't say that you mustn't, because even when Jesus here is talking about the speck and the log, you'll notice that he says, you hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye, then you can see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he's not saying it's wrong to try and take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's just saying get the log out of your own first. So it's not Jesus saying you must never correct. But of course the important thing is that if we do correct, it must be done as a fellow sinner. You know, knowing that at any moment you could fall into sin too. So correction can never be done from some, you know, high moral platform, because of course we're all sinners, uh, and what we have in common is the grace and forgiveness of God. But what James is dealing with, and this is the third type, and this is really, you know, back to our four divisions earlier, when James is talking about, you know, do not speak evil against each other, don't judge, is quite specifically, and this, this is the most serious of the lot, of, of all the wrong judgment types there are, this is the worst. James is quite simply dealing with the situation when you've got Christians who have got it in for each other and they're using their mouths as one of their weapons in their armory against them. So when James is talking about wrong judgment, he's writing to Christians, as we saw last time, who are virtually at war with each other. They're slagging each other off. They resent each other, they're bitter to each other, they want to do each other down, they want to harm each other. And therefore they're using words as part of that battle. And what we've got here, you know, sort of like in verse, um, you know, verse 11, when he says about, you know, sort of like, do, you know, don't judge or speak evil, it is, back to verse 2, when he says, you desire and do not have, so you kill. 
you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. That is the wrong judgment that James is specifically dealing with here. All the false accusations, all the poison, all the rot that these Christians are going around saying about other Christians, whether the accusations be true or not. Because here's the point. I mean, there might be a Christian who is in sin, but the point is, you could then use the fact that they're in sin to get at them and to do them down. So whether the accusations are true or not, I mean, obviously it's even worse if the accusations that you're making against people are false. But even if they're true, you can make true accusations against a brother or a sister in such a way that you're trying to destroy them, not restore them to the Lord, but to destroy them. And, and James is saying, you know, look, this is not on. This has absolutely got to stop. We're supposed to love each other. You know, I mean, our hearts, I mean, you know, shed abroad, um, you know, with the love of God by the Holy Ghost. And, you know, so there's no way that Christians ought to be acting like this. So, what we've got to ask now is, uh, why is it that he then goes on and uh, says that this is um, like talking against the law because he's got um you know he says that he that speaks evil against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law but if you judge the law you are not a doer of the law but a judge and so therefore why is it why is he phrasing it in that way to say that to do this it's not just that you're judging the brother or sister wrongly, but you're actually judging the law itself. Well, in order to answer that, let's go back to Leviticus chapter 19. We were there before. I have to go back to that now. Just a reminder there of one of the reasons I stopped using this RSV. One Peter just fell out. Right, um, back to Leviticus. Um, <laughs> Right, Leviticus chapter 19, and we read verse 15, which we're going to do again, but now we're going to add verse 16 to it at all, uh, as well. So Leviticus 19 and verse 15, he says, You shall do no injustice in judgment, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbour. So there you've got not no judgment, but right judgment, as opposed to wrong judgment. And then he goes on to say, you shall not go up and down as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand forth against the life of your neighbour. I am the Lord. Now then, go over to Titus got 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, then you get Titus. And chapter 3 and verse 2. Titus. Titus, chapter 3 and verse 2. Timothy. So in the Leviticus, it's added to the wrong judgment, make sure that you're not a slanderer and speaking against your neighbour with slander. And then in, in Titus 3, verse 2, he's giving a list of things that they're not to do. And he says, to speak evil of no one. 
Now, there we've got speak evil again, but it's a different Greek word. It's not katalaliu that we saw earlier. This word here in the Greek is blasphemio. Now, it's where we get the word blasphemy from. And what it means is to speak injuriously of. So, to blaspheme someone, I mean, you know, the word blasphemy in English is kind of like, you know, sort of reserved for God himself, isn't it? You know, to blaspheme against God. But to blaspheme, you can blaspheme against anyone. And it simply means to speak of someone in such a way that it will do them injury, usually to their integrity and reputation. Because after all, blasphemy, you know, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, say, take films or, you know, writers who want to, de or even theologians and ministers in the church who want to depict Jesus as a homosexual. Now, that completely defames him. It's a blasphemy because it totally destroys his integrity. And, you know, in people's eyes, it takes away his holiness and his righteousness. And so, therefore, here again, Paul is saying, make sure that you're not doing that. And the thing about that if you do it, that you're judging the law and going against the law, is that if you do it, you're claiming to be above the law. I mean, think about it. If you've got someone who feels free to walk into someone's house, or, you know, like, crash their way through a window, so they break into someone's house and they go off with their television and their family silver and their video, there, in a burglar, you've got someone who think that they're above the law. You've got the open declaration by a person that the law doesn't apply to me. Anyone who breaks the law does so because they think that they're above the law. All right, now that applies to any crime that there is. It's the claim, virtually, or the outlook, that the law doesn't apply to you. So therefore, we've seen that the Old Testament law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all right, makes it very clear that Christians must only engage in right judgment, and that they must never engage in wrong judgment, in being unfair, in slandering people, or anything like that at all. Now, he's writing to Christians who were Jewish, whose background was the law. Now, they knew that they were set free from the law, and James knew that he was set free from the law. But what he's saying is that, can't you see that when you're doing this, you're actually saying that you consider yourselves to be above the law. That, that God's moral standards somehow don't apply to you, and that's the argument that he's putting. He's basically saying, look, who on earth do you think you are? in the light of what we know to be the truth, especially as Jews with their background in the Old Testament, he's saying, who on earth do you think you are, that you feel free as Christians to fly in the face of all that and to be going around treating other people in a way that is absolutely awful, stitching them up, lying about them, slandering them, slagging them off behind their back, you name it. And you see, part of the irony of this as well is that very often when believers do this to each other, you know, i.e. you get, you know, like a group of believers set against another group of believers, or it might be just one individual Christian has got it in for someone else and sets themselves against them, you tend to find that it's, 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 it's not that often 
that Christians go around doing their slagging off and their defaming work blatantly. I mean, for instance, it wouldn't be that often, for instance, you know, that you'd have perhaps Christian A, you know, sort of like, you know, going up to Christian B and, you know, sort of saying things like, I think you're from the pit, I hate you, I can't stand you, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's just too blatant, isn't it? What Christians tend to do is far more subtle. Firstly, it's largely behind people's backs. But secondly, it tends to be from the moral high ground. It doesn't tend to be a, I hate you and I don't care what the Bible says. No, it's far more subtle than that. It tends to be done in the way that the Lord has shown me your error. I've, I've discerned that they're wrong and I've got to protect other people from them. You see how much more subtle that is? Rather than just facing them up, look, I hate you and I don't care what the Bible says. It's more behind people's backs. They're evil. They're dangerous. Satan's using them. Can you see what I mean? Almost at the very time that they're going against the law, at the very time they're demonstrating that they don't consider themselves to be under, and consider I'm above the law, God's standards don't apply to me, at the very moment of doing that, they're trying to use God's law to justify what they're doing. So that in this process, of trying to destroy other believers, they're actually claiming that God is with them in doing it. And that is why, you know, James brings this thing in here about the law. Whilst claiming the moral high ground of God's law, these believers are trampling it into the ground and setting themselves above it while they gaily go around their, 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 their daily business of stitching each other up and getting their own back and hurting each other and what have you. And, uh, you know, and, and, and James is saying, look, all this is wrong judgment and it must stop. Now, just, just at this point, let's, let's ask the question, all right? We've seen uh, clearly that, uh, you know, this kind of wrong judgment well, it's just a no-no. You know, the Bible's saying, don't get involved in it. It's a sin. It's wrong. So we can have control over that. I can make sure I don't end up doing it. But what I, or anyone else, can't control is whether or not you ever end up a victim of it. So let's ask the question, right, so what should be our response if we ever become the victim? of wrong judgment. If we ever judge wrongly ourselves, our response is repentance and putting it right with the people or the person concerned. But what should our response be if we become the victim of wrong judgment? Well, we'll answer that question by asking how did Paul deal with it? Because, I mean, Paul was often on the receiving end of that kind of thing. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 this time, 1 Corinthians, chapter 4. And, um, and the verses we're going to look at is, is kind of Paul's... Uh, there, there were always Christians who, who were prepared to, to kind of follow Paul around. And when Paul moved away from a church... They kind of plant themselves in it and, and try and take the church over and turn the church against Paul. 
uh, you know, Paul suffered a lot from, uh, you know, from people like that. And, uh, you know, and of course what they'd do is they'd, they'd be accusing Paul of this, that and the other. So, for instance, they'd go into the Corinthian church and they'd be saying to the people, look, can't you see, Paul's just trying to exploit you. Paul just wants your money. Paul just this, that and the other. You know, all the kind of the, you know, the poison and the wrong judgment. You know, and this would happen to Paul everywhere he went. And, uh, and he responds to this. And uh, in, in, in verse 3, he says, he says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then every man will receive his commendation from God. Now, what Paul is responding to there is um, accusations which he knows are untrue of him. So when he says, I don't even judge myself, he's not contradicting what he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says we must judge ourselves. What he's saying, in regards to all these stupid you know, kind of accusations that these people are making about me. And in 2 Corinthians, he calls them superlative apostles, and, and, and he gets really quite sarky about them, you know. And, uh, you know, sort of like uh, in verse 19, he says, I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. You know, so Paul says, tell them I will be coming to the church again, then they'll have to face me. Let's see how brave they are then. So Paul is responding to believers who, who try to take over churches, but they, they, they do all the poison and, and the falsely accusing Paul. And what Paul says, look, if I know I'm not guilty, I don't even judge myself. In fact, he's saying, I don't give it a second thought. And that in effect, what he's saying is, if you're being falsely accused, as he was, but you know that it's false, and your conscience is utterly clear before God that it isn't true, then basically what he's saying is, judge away, lads, I couldn't give a monkey's. My conscience is clear. Judge away, I don't care. Take it to court, take it to the highest court in the land. I'm innocent, couldn't give a monkey's. And there's a great freedom in that, isn't it? Uh, you know, tie that in again in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, blessed are you, when men curse you and revile you and cast out your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now it's very easy when, when you know that, that, that you are the, the target of false accusations and the murmurings going around. It's very easy to actually end up a bit down and even condemned, you know, and stuff like that. Whereas Jesus went on to say, in that day, leap for joy. So we've got here Paul saying, look, if I'm falsely accused, and really what it boils down to is persecution, because other people have got it in for me because they're out of fellowship or whatever, then Paul says, but couldn't give a monkeys, all right? And Jesus says, leap for joy. You know, rejoice when it happens to you. That, that kind of puts the other side, doesn't it? Because it's so easy to go on a big downer. You know, I know often in the past it's, it's had that effect on me. I've actually ended up feeling condemned. 
I mean, sort of like knowing that you're not actually guilty of the things you're being accused of, but then you can end up getting all condemned over other things that you know that you are guilty of, but that you've confessed and God has forgiven, and, oh, you know, it's dreadful, absolutely dreadful. So our response to false accusation has got to be to absolutely just, you know, stand against it, because it's one of Satan's fiery darts. Yeah, I've got to say, well, couldn't give monkeys. You know, I'm not guilty, so what you like. It doesn't matter, you know, and leap for joy, because it's, it's being persecuted because of your faithfulness to the Lord. And then in verse 12, all right, we're back in James now. Um, in verse 12, he, on, on this kind of subject, he, he gives them a warning, um, you know, in regards to all this wrong judgment that they're doing. And what he says is this, there is one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you that you judge your neighbour. And in effect, what he's saying there is, because he says, look, there's one lawgiver and judge. Of course it's God. Because God is the setter of every moral standard. Because moral standards are the very character and holiness of God. And in effect, he's saying, you're doing all this wrong judging, all this putting yourself above the law and trying to use the law to justify your own sin, he says, look, there's one lawgiver and there's one judge. And what he says, he says, careful, be careful, because you're not bigger than God. That is, in effect, what he's saying. He's saying, look, God is bigger than you. And if you keep going down this path, you're, you're going to get to the point where you, you do hit him head on. Because, I mean, this is really serious, what they're into. And he says, look, you're not bigger than God. Be careful if you're going to carry on in this course of action. Be very, very careful. So then, in effect, what we've seen, and this ties in with last time, the, the wars and the fightings and, and the coveting, we've seen here that there can indeed be times when Christians have got the knives out for each other, when they're slagging each other off behind their backs, when there's malicious rumour-mongering, when there's lies, slander, it happens. But, oh boy, we've got to make sure it never happens amongst us. And, uh, you know, and, and there are times when any of us can just be at the very first step down that road. We know we can, can't we? Well, let's, let's make sure that we just nip it in the bud. You know, it's, it's so dreadful when, when things like that happen. So then, basically now, we, we've seen you know, him doing two kinds of everything. We, we can now add to the list, uh, seeing that there are two kinds of judging, isn't there? There's wrong judging and right judging. And basically, what we've seen here, that James is rightly judging their wrong judging. So he's rightly telling them they're wrong. And, you know, so there's the example of the two kind of, uh, you know, sort of... Um, judging that there is. And of course, at, at the root of all wrong judgment that we do, and, and we need to identify the things in our hearts, all right, it's things like resentment, it's things like selfishness. You know, sort of like, for instance, selfishness cannot just be, you know, sort of like, oh, you want to do this, no, but I want to do that. I mean, yeah, that's selfishness. But it can sometimes be the wanting I want to be the centre of attention. 
You see what I mean? It's so subtle. Jealousy. Isn't it easy to be jealous? Um, that because those things can appear in our hearts, whenever they do, they're Satan's little push for us to start going down the road of wrong judging. And, and so that's why we need to be so careful, vigilant, you know, to, to, that any time that we become aware that, that, that our attitude to someone is wrong, then let, let's nip it in the bud and be really careful because it's so easy then to start using the tongue to spread the old poison. So any time that anything like this appears amongst us, we, we need to, you know, to really get that under control, um, you know, uh, amongst ourselves right from the start because we, we've seen dreadful examples of it in our history and we must make sure that it never happens again, that, it, that it's always nipped in the bud. Okay, right, we'll leave it there and we'll carry on next time. Oh, what a short one. What a short one.